Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. For today, I, th- I thought it would be of interest to revisit the controversy regarding the famed, some of more recently argued infamous, UW, UW alum, the noted stage and screen actor Frederick March. As some of you listeners will recall, March's name was removed from the name of the Place Circle Theater in the Memorial Union following charges that surfaced in 2017 that he had been a member of a student group associated with the Ku Klux Klan while he was a UW upperclassman uh, back in 1919-1920. The idea of the program came about after reading a piece in the current Progressive magazine entitled The Truth About Frederick March by one of our guests today, the award-winning journalist and civil liberties advocate uh, Madison's Bill Leaders. Also joining us from Milwaukee today is the public historian and journalist George Gonis, a leading voice in an effort to rehabilitate March's name and reputation. Welcome, both of you, to WORT. Bill, I want to start, I want to start with you, Bill Leaders. Uh, let's begin by recounting the case dating back to 2017 regarding the March controversy. The allegations that that March, as a UW student, had been affiliated with the KKK and the events leading up to the eventual removal of his name from the Place Circle Theater inside the Memorial Union. Yeah, well, it was in uh, in 2017 that the um, discovery was made. Uh, Others had known it before, but it came to light in a more public way that uh, Frederick March as a student in 1919 and 1920 as a senior belonged to a campus honorary society that took the name the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, And a committee was appointed to look into this matter by UW Chancellor Rebecca Blank. uh, And it it examined the uh, history behind it and uh, concluded that there was no affiliation between the campus uh, KKK that Frederick March and others uh, belong to and the infamous um, uh, hate group that uh, existed as well. It, had, it was a, uh, a, the same name but no affiliation and there was no evidence that the campus group had ever been involved in any uh, bigotry or ex- expressions of, 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 of racism. Um, And the committee, this is really the interesting thing for me, um, that was appointed by the chancellor, came back and said, uh, we don't want you to take the easy way out about this. We want you to acknowledge uh, that racism is something that permeates the experience of the UW, is something that that happened in March's time and happens now. Uh, Don't simply think you can take a name away and make things all better. We want you to take meaningful action to address racial inequity and to acknowledge the, the uh, racial inequity that has existed throughout the university's history. And Blank basically ignored that advice, and they moved forward with plans just to strip the name uh, from the play circle uh, and, and banish him and create this cloud over his character, which, as I have come to understand, is wholly undeserved. Not only was he not a racist, he was an anti-racist of some renown. Uh, he had um, affiliations with Martin Luther King. He gave a uh, speech at a uh, event from the NAACP. He was a keynote speaker for it. Uh, he was someone that throughout his life had uh, has put himself on the line in defense of equal rights for for uh, for black people and and others. And um, George Ganes, who is our fellow guest, has been uh, pushing for this and leading a national movement. Uh, to recognize that it was a mistake and an injustice to uh, strip Frederick March of the honors that he uh, had uh, 
received at the UW and cast his name into infamy. So they're trying to overturn that. And, uh, and that's why I found it interesting to weigh in on in my column at, for the Progressive Magazine. You know, Bill Leaders, you, um, you make note of the fact as well in, t- in chronicling the, the story the, that the university first covers the name, right? They don't remove it from from its position, but they cover it what, with a, with a drape or a cloth or or, or whatever. This kind of halfway, we don't know what to do kind of measure, um, which to me illustrated well something about the university in and of itself. Yeah, it's like um, no, you can't see this. Uh, this is our solution to this perceived problem is we're going to just cover his his name up and then and then remove it. And again, this is something that the committee that was appointed to look into is a nine-member committee that included three people of color uh, explicitly uh, advised should not happen. Uh, don't simply take the name off and think you've accomplished something. That committee came back with a much sterner and more challenging uh, call to the UW, which it chose not to pursue. You know, I want to I want to continue on before bringing George Gonis in, in, into the discussion. Uh, Bill, you, you began your progressive piece in the current, uh, well, the current progressive, um, this piece entitled The Truth About Frederick March, um, with some longer history, that of the background case in, involving the credo of the University of Wisconsin with its famed sifting and winnowing quote uh, enshrined on the plaque outside Bascom Hall, of course, why that reference? Why did you find it important to uh, begin there? Well, there was a, uh, uh, it is a famous quote that appears on Bascom Hall about uh, whatever the limitations of inquiry uh, pertain to others here at the UW, at the University of Wisconsin, we follow the fearless uh, sifting and winnowing uh, by which alone the truth can be found. Um, really great, important words. And there's a whole story behind how they got to be on uh, the building. There was a, uh, these are from a decision that was issued by the Board of Regents when it was asked to fire a professor for being a radical. It refused, it issued the statement. A uh, graduating class from 1910 wanted to put this statement on uh, the, the building. And so it, it had the plaque made and it gave it to the university and the university board of regents refused to put it up until there was a big pressure campaign uh, that included um, placards and buses and an editorial uh, from the Wisconsin State Journal saying, you know, why would you not want these words on on your wall? And in 1915, uh, it was uh, put up. This uh, wording, I think, is significant for more than the one reason that it's 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 thought to be it's not just that truth can be discovered uh through the fearless sifting and winnowing but that truth was discoverable truth was something that could be discerned and that it mattered uh there was a reason to seek the truth and to uphold the truth that's part of the credo of the university and this i think is done great violence by the idea of uh, saying it's perfectly fine for us to strip a individual of recognition based on what is historically a misunderstanding uh, and that the truth uh, demands more, fidelity to the truth demands more, which is what uh, George has been uh, pushing to see happen. I want to bring uh, our second guest, George Gonis, into the conversation. Um, George, George, the decision to remove March's name and, and that of, of Another long-honored alum, uh, union director, Porter Butts, they've both come under deserved criticism in large part due to the efforts uh, of your efforts, really, George Gonis. Talk about how you became involved in this and and what the hoops, really, that you've been jumping through uh, and, of course, what your... Uh, research has revealed. Sure, I, I, I'd always had somewhat an awareness of Frederick March's uh, civil rights background. I, I, I grew up in a in a civil rights marching family that also uh, uh, boasted two parents who were movie buffs, and so my parents kind of let us know who in Hollywood uh, stood on the right side of history. So I had a ge- general awareness, even as a, a young man, that March was on the right side of history. So. 
when I read what was happening in Madison, that suddenly um, uh, he was being branded a racist, a white supremacist, a Klan member, and that his name should come down. I, I, well, I immediately knew, well, that's wrong. And, and, and I thought, well, surely someone, you know, student, you know, the union itself, the student press, the mainstream press, certainly, you know, it's, it's uh, all these facts are so easily accessible, the truth will come out and it will take care of itself. And then as I continued to observe from afar, um, here in Milwaukee, that's where I'm based, uh, nothing, and Madison is my alma mater, and um, nothing was appearing in the press. And uh, there were no statements about March's um, uh, uh, commitment on the, on the front battle lines of civil rights across seven different decades. And so I finally just realized I've got to write this myself and, and research it myself and, and do something about this. And when I decided to do that, I went to my, my local Wauwatosa library. That was the first thing I did. Went to the civil rights um, section, history section of the library, pulled out you know, the books by the authors I knew, people who were Pulitzer Prize winners, who were very well known in the field of civil rights history. Immediately went to the indexes, and there was Frederick March's name in book after book after book and all its protagonist glory. Now, I've discovered that in my first 10 minutes of research, so it made me scratch my head. It's so accessible and so out there and so everywhere. Why is this not getting out? And so then I started doing research and it was explosive because I knew March was on the right side of history. I just didn't know how much he was. I didn't know how towering his civil rights efforts were. Um, you know, a 30-year intimate ally of the NAACP, um, one of just, you know, dozens, hundreds of, of famous people, Hollywood people, were asked to participate in Marian Anderson's concert, that, that famous seminal concert in 1939 um, in Washington, D.C., when she was refused uh, uh, the, um, the chance to perform at Constitution Hall by the Daughters of the American Revolution and Eleanor Roosevelt and others, and mostly spearheaded by the NAACP, organized the famous Lincoln Memorial Concert. Hundreds of famous people and people in Hollywood were asked to support her and participate, and just about all of them refused because they said they couldn't get involved in something so controversial. There were only four people in Hollywood who were at that concert. Frederick March, his wife Florence Eldridge, Catherine Hepburn, and Tallulah Bankhead. In fact, Frederick March was a public sponsor of the concert with his wife. Her name is printed on the Marian Anderson program. He cherished the program she signed for him the rest of his life. And they became uh, uh, good friends, both uh, uh, social friends and participated in, in assorted uh, political and, and race relations related um, uh, uh, activist um, um, uh, uh, programs and so on. And, and uh, then at that point, also at the same time, became you know, close friends with Langston Hughes, the great Canada Lee, and so on. George Gannis, talk about uh, the letter you wrote calling out in the UW-Madison uh, to reverse its decision. Uh, talk a little bit about the content of the letter uh, and then the co-signers, people that signed on to it. Well, it was spearheaded in great part by, by Karen Kramer, who is the widow of Stanley Kramer, the great social justice film director and, and you know, well-known civil rights advocate. And Mrs. Kramer couldn't believe what was happening. And so between the two of us, uh, we figured um, uh, that a, a letter to, the, to both universities, because, because of what I say both, uh, and because of what happened in Madison, there was also theater named after March at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, and because of what Madison did, Oshkosh removed March's name as well. And so we sent a letter, this letter to both universities. That was in fall of um, 2021. There were 30 signatories um, initially. So in addition to Karen Kramer, um, you know, the, the national headquarters of the NAACP uh, and the chair and the, and the president and CEO of the, uh, of the NAACP. In fact, the legal department of the NAACP went out of their way to uh, uncover new evidence for us because they see Frederick March as a favorite son, and indeed they did provide uh, great evidence of his commitment to civil rights. Um, you know, other signatories, you know, Dr. Clarence B. Jones, who was Martin Luther King's personal legal counsel and the co-author of the I Have a Dream speech, Dr. Bernard Lafayette, who's a leader of the Freedom Writers, John Lewis's college roommate and a co-founder of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, 
Dr. Gail Lamette Buckley, a, a historian herself, and the daughter of Lena Horn, uh, musician Guy Davis, the son of Ossie Davis and Ruby D, the late Ed Asner, um, the late Fran Bennett, a UW grad who's known as a great, she just she passed away about a year ago, um, great Shakespearean actress, and if you're a Star Trek fan, people will know her from that, uh, an, an NAACP Image Award winner, uh, you know, Jewish Museum Milwaukee, Louis Gossett Jr., um, you're Scott Wallace, who's the grandson of FDR Vice President Henry Wallace, who was the first presidential candidate as a progressive to campaign on outlawing Jim Crow. You know, Leonard Moulton, George Stevens Jr., who's not only a filmmaker but a great civil rights uh, uh, advocate. Kate Lardner, the, the, the daughter of Ring Lardner Jr., because March was very involved in fighting the blacklist and defending people who were blacklisted and, in fact, suffered himself. You know, one year the marches, and I think it was 1948, reported $2.48 in income because of the jobs they lost due to the blacklist. Um, uh, you know, Marcia Young, uh, who is the daughter of Urban League icon Whitney Young, um, uh, also the um, Paula uh, Young Shelton, who is the daughter of uh, UN Ambassador Andrew Young. Um, so, and so in total, when you, uh, a second letter was sent in this last fall, so fall of 2022, and there were 24 additional signatories. So um, that totals 54 iconic signatories, progressives all, civil rights activists all, who um, were in disbelief at, 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 at the university's actions and urged the university to essentially fulfill the Wisconsin idea, which means uh, if you've made a mistake, identifying the mistake and then correcting it, and it's interesting that the university continues to cloak the reasons uh, for its actions in the Wisconsin idea, when in fact what was done was really, the ver as Bill pointed out, the very antithesis of the Wisconsin idea. So, did you want to come in, Bill? Well, I was just going to say, uh, George, you forgot Mike Farrell, the uh, progressive actor oh, yeah. who starred in MASH. <laughs> Mike Mayfair and his wife Shirley Fabre is also an activist, and the I also forgot to mention that a, per, a person who's been a supporter uh, is uh, James Cromwell, the great actor. Who, in fact, some people may recall that he was arrested a few years ago in Madison when uh, in protesting right. um, um, uh, treatment of animals on campus, burst into I believe a, a, a Board of Regents meeting and was arrested in Madison. But of course, he's about uh, uh, as woke. As, as you can get. In fact, his father, John Cromwell, was, um, you know, Frederick March started a 50-year relationship, friendship with John Cromwell just a few months after he left Madison in 1920. March moved to New York almost immediately upon graduation uh, in 1920, first thinking he was going to pursue acting, but pretty quickly, uh, excuse me, banking, but pretty quickly because he'd been a commerce major at Madison, but quickly, you know, he'd also acted on stage in Madison and was quite, it was quite a popular um, well-reviewed actor in, in productions at the UW and decided, no, that's, that's what he wants to do. And, and so he friends, uh, starts this 50-year relationship with John Cramwell, who's a great director, who was one of the biggest victims of the blacklist. But when March met him, he's a well-known racial justice advocate already in, in, in 1920, uh, John Cromwell is. And, of course, that becomes uh, his closest friend in, in the business for 50 years. And, of course, he is... Uh, James Cromwell is his son. In fact, John Cromwell encouraged James Cromwell to join uh, um, uh, an integrated theater troupe traveling the Deep South in 1963. Uh, uh, imagine that uh, under the auspices of SMIC. Uh, so March's civil rights pedigree goes back to the age of 13. He was a state high school oratory champion. Uh, and the, the speeches that we do know he delivered and that he selected all um, emphasize, uh, uh, they all speak out against uh, bondage, slavery. Uh, they're all on behalf of liberty, uh, freedom. Uh, he delivers the famous uh, speech by abolitionist Wendell Phillips, uh, mm -hmm. Toussaint L'Ouverture, which is an anti-white supremacy speech. He's doing that at 13. Uh, he befriends, he starts another 50-year relationship with the great UW Please. professor Max Otto, who's friend of the Follett. Clarence Darrow, famous Unitarian humanist. So, George, so, so, so George, what you, you have this long list, this litany of uh, notables, civil rights notables, activists, progressives, uh, and so on. This letter gets sent to the university. Uh, 
what what was the formal response? I uh, I noticed in preparing for I, I noticed in preparing for the program uh, that uh, then Chancellor Rebecca Blank had a piece in the New York Times, basically in an attempt to legitimize or rationalize um, their their action. You'll notice in that piece because that uh, the letter was uh, unveiled, if you will, the fact of the letter. It had been sent to the university already, but the fact of the letter had been unveiled in a piece by John McWhorter in the New York Times. Uh, that prompted uh, Chancellor Blank's letter to the editor to the, to the Times. What was interesting is that the whole gist of McWhorter's article was breaking the news of this letter. But Chancellor Blank does not mention the letter at all does not mention the points in the letter at all, does not mention a single signatory of the letter. She avoids it completely. And, of course, I think the reasons are obvious. If you were to mention that, then you would have to defend indefensible actions. You don't necessarily want to make the point, I would, uh, is my view of it, that all of these civil rights progressives have condemned the university's actions. And so to, uh, the quick answer to your original question is there has been no response. And then on the second go round, this letter, the second letter that was sent out in fall of 22, uh, the letter specifically asked for a response to the letter, the points in the letter, and to all 54 signatories directly. That has never come. It has never, it, so they, they have not responded at all. They have ignored it and avoided it entirely and failed and have gone out of the way to never even mention that the letter exists. So the only way people know about the letter is through Bill's article and the articles of McWhorter and others, but the university uh, has never acknowledged um, the letter itself, its contents, or the signatory. You know, I, received... I, quote, I quote from that letter in my uh, article in The Progressive from Chancellor Blank's letter to the New York Times, <clears throat> where she just says, there are some things in our country's history that are so toxic that you can never erase the stain. Membership in a group with a name like the KKK is one of them. So she's basically asserting that the appearance that is created by the use of this name by this group is more important than the reality that the group was not affiliated with the actual KKK. And that's what I find fundamentally objectionable about this as a seeker of truth and as someone who would like the university to uphold its own announced uh, fidelity to the ideal of truth, that she would basically say the truth of the matter uh, is not as important as uh, the appearance that it may generate. And I find that really very strongly objectionable. You know, uh, Shally, our engineer today uh, sent me a, a message from a uh, attentive listener who uh, says that the campus clan did not come to light in 2017. Well, yeah, there's actually a, a fairly uh, lengthy uh, writing by various historians uh, on the, that was published earlier. Uh, but thanks Let me for speak that. to that, uh, Alan. Sure. Sorry? Sure. Uh, Stu Leviton does talk about that in, in his 2006 uh, book, The Illustrated, Madison the Illustrated, Susquicentennial History. Uh, but I actually wrote about it much earlier than that. Uh, in the 1990s, I believe, or maybe in the very early 2000s, uh, I did a story about how uh, an individual uh, named uh, Philip Falk, uh, after whom a Madison Elementary School was named, was a member of this honorary society. And I believe in that article, I also mentioned Frederick March and uh, Porter Butts as being members of this. So this came out a long time ago. And I remember back at that time, I was incredulous that a group could exist in the 1920s, call itself the KKK, and yet have no affiliation and deserve none of the stain that associated itself uh, with that, that name. Um, but that is what uh, historians have argued subsequently, that there was not a widespread recognition of the group under that name, uh, and that it was a coincidence that the Campus Honorary Society uh, bore the name of the hate group. You're listening to Bill Leaders and George Gonis. We're talking about, obviously, the ongoing controversy uh, in regard to Frederick March and others uh, and their, well, purging from the public face of the university uh, for 
uh, their alleged connections to the KKK. Uh, we'll talk further about that. If you want to get in with a question or a comment, join the conversation. Uh, give us a call at 608 256 2001. We had been doing extension 9. Are we still doing that, Shelly? Extension 9. 608 256 2001. Extension 9. If you want to join in our conversation today. The response of the university is still uh, one of, well, unapolo- unapologetic denial. Um, I want to come back to this question uh, both of you have touched on, uh, and, and that is, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, and that is this, I think there's something deeper than coincidence. Maybe I'm totally wrong, uh, but certainly by... Uh, 1919, 1920, there's this, uh, well, in the popular culture, like historians like UW's Linda Gordon uh, writing about uh, the Klan as a social movement uh, in the uh, 1920s points to its multifaceted impact on American uh, U.S. society and culture. Uh, So it doesn't strike me all that odd that a group of, of undergraduate students would come to this name uh, per, perhaps quite unwittingly? Um, the chronology is very important here. The original Klan, the first Klan, was formed right after the Civil War and it was short-lived. Of course, it was horrendous, cruel, beastly, uh, a, a, a murderous terrorist group. But it was limited to parts of the South, and as existed, as I said, it was short-lived from 1865 to around 1871. It is that Klan that is misrepresented heroically by D.W. Griffith in his 1915 Birth of a Nation. Uh, that film spurs a gentleman, uh, I don't want to use the word gentleman, but his person, <laughs> uh, spurs someone to start um, a fraternal organization that he named Ku Klux Klan as a way to make money through apparel sales and dues and memberships and so on. Uh, that also kind of, you know, was inspired by this, you know, heroic clan in, in, in this person's eyes. Uh, but it is uh, uh, only in, uh, exist in this, and historians call that the second clan. So it's very important to note. That's an incredibly local organization that's only in a few counts, no one, in a few counties in Georgia and Alabama. It is no one nowhere else in the United States. In fact, it's kind of on the ropes by 1920. It's running out of money. It looks like it's going to fade. And then two Georgia PR people, literally public relations people, go to this guy and say, you know, if you go national and reach out nationally and add to your hate list agenda, not just African-Americans, but Jewish people, Catholic people, evolutionists, uh, all the foreign born, um, you'll, you'll, you'll make more money and, and it, it'll, it, that's what we should do, and that's what was done. The first time there was no national profile, there was no national awareness of this second Klan until 1921. The, the, the student honorary is founded on the University of Illinois campus around 1916 in Champaign. Now, why specifically they chose that name, we don't know, but this was before there was any awareness of the second Klan, the Klan that is the the famous or infamous one that we all know today that took over state governments beginning in the mid to late 20s and, and continues to this day. Um, but uh, it, there was no awareness of that group in, in 1916. This comes, by the way, not just for me, but from from civil rights um, Klan historians, progressive historians, uh, like Ray Arsenault, the John Hope Franklin professor in Florida, Steve Whitfield of Brandeis, Lonnie Bunch, the secretary of the Smithsonian uh, the founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, uh, Arnold Rampersad, who's the dean of um, uh, civil rights biographers in this country, uh, Arthur uh, um, Arnold Rampersad of, of Stanford. Um, they have confirmed this, that there was a, you know, no national awareness. In fact, Ray Arsenault, the professor I just mentioned, I'll just quote him here quickly. It would have been unusual if college students in 1918 to 1920, March's junior and senior years, would have a full understanding of the Klan name. People today just see or hear the KKK name and jump to conclusions. But it's complicated. Most people do not take the time to understand the subtleties and nuances here, and Frederick March is just caught in this. 
Um, and so that, that, that's a fact, and that's a fact that was never explored or looked into. So, when, so the, the Illinois group comes to Madison in, basically in the summer of 1919. It's a, we have this chapter of it. It's an honor society for junior, outstanding junior men. Uh, um, and again, it's an invitation. No, it's a surprise induction. You have, you can't pursue uh, membership. You can't lobby for it. It just comes as an out of the blue surprise induction based on your academic and campus performance. And March was an outstanding student, very active in, in student activities, and he is elected by surprise to this. In 1919, he hasn't even heard of this group. In 1919, it's, it's new to Madison in 1919, the beginning of his senior year. It's one of many honor societies he's inducted into because of his academic performance. And so he joins. And But here again, that senior year, that same senior year, as I said, he's beginning this 50-year friendship with, with the great civil rights liberal, Professor Max Otto, who for, who for about 40 years was the single most popular professor on campus. Students were told, you can't get your UW degree unless you take a Max Otto course. So at the same time that there was all of this, um, indeed, um, casual and overt bigotry on the UW campus. There were, Max Otto was the single most popular professor, and the university was also in thrall of Bell and Bob LaFollette, Mr. and Mrs. Wisconsin idea, who were admired by Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois for their civil rights stances. So that's going on at the same time, too. And so the person who, at, you know, as I said, at age 13 is delivering anti-white supremacy speeches and making friends with Max Otto this same senior year. He's supposedly in a racist organization. Uh, and then just a few months later starts a lifelong 50-year friendship with John Cromwell. Um, there's just all sorts of evidence that it was uh, a, uh, only coincidentally named. There has never been any charter, document, photo, et cetera, um, speaking to this, uh, that connects this group to the, to the terrible Klan or its philosophies. And again, that Klan came later after this group was founded, and um, and likewise, uh, you know, the fad at the time. And this is another bit of kind of hidden in plain sight, exonerating evidence, was for male organizations uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s to be named, uh, to be christened with occult-like, ghostly, spooky names like Skull and Bones, and so on. There are dozens of those out there in campuses across the country. So the evidence, uh, a bit of evidence that points strongly to that's why um, uh, it was named that uh, around 1916 at the University of Illinois, was students um, didn't take out of D.W. Griffith's film the, the, the horrendous nature of who the Klan actually was and what they actually did. It's like, oh, those are scary costumes. Um, and one of the bits of evidence that points to that is the symbol chosen for the group is a horned snaring devil atop two cross pitchforks and as so many professors have pointed out the Klan was so dependent upon its connection to christianity and jesus that the last no group even tangentially associated with the real Klan would have selected a snaring devil across atop cross pitchforks as the symbol so that's another bit of mm -hmm. evidence hidden in plain sight as well as the chronology that i just mentioned we're going, you know, we're getting toward the end of the hour already, and uh, as is so often the case, we have uh, some callers, or at least one caller right now, uh, interested in coming on with a question or comment. Hello, Sarah, you're on the air. Thank you, Alan. I cannot believe that these students weren't aware of the Ku Klux Klan's activities in the South. Strange fruit, uh, lynching, um, burning down houses. Uh, um, I just can't believe this. I worked in the University of Wisconsin archives, and my boss heard about this. Um, and 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 thank you, Bill Leaders, and heard about this and wrote a letter. Uh, which was published in, I believe, the Capital Times. And I still have that letter somewhere in my archives. And uh, he was defending the students and said there was no connection at all. But I still cannot believe that they picked that name, Ku Klux Klan, and not knowing what the Klan was about. 
Thank you. Th- thank you, Sarah. Good hearing your voice. Good. <laughs> Bill, Bill or George? Well, uh, uh, go ahead, Bill. Uh, that's exactly what I thought with regard to Philip Falk when I found out that the namesake of a mass in elementary school had belonged to this Klan organization. They must have had some idea. And the committee that looked into this, now the, the name of that school uh, was changed in recent years to be named after Malele um, um, Chikara uh, Anana. Um, but the committee that looked into this issue acknowledged that uh, there was uh, active and overt racism and discrimination in Madison and on campus at the time uh, that Frederick March belonged to this this group. There was discrimination against blacks, against Jews, against Native Americans and housing and accommodations. All of these things were real. All of these things were stains on uh, the university. And while this was going on, the committee noted, uh, there's very little evidence that the University of Wisconsin did anything uh, to oppose the biggest bigotry in its midst at that time. And yet when it comes to light that there's uh, this, this issue with regard to a particular individual, the university's uh, impulse is just to say, well, let's take his name away. And the committee very strongly objected to that as a response to this. The committee said the history that the UW needs to confront, and I'm quoting here, was not the aberrant work of a few individuals, but a pervasive culture of racial and religious bigotry casual and unexamined in its prevalence, in which exclusion and indignity were routined, sanctioned in the institution's daily life and unchallenged by its leaders. So, you know, you can say, take the name off the wall and we're good. Uh, Or you can say what the committee said is the university needs to acknowledge its own complicity uh, in racism in the past and in the present. And, and I would only add, and just to repeat briefly what I said a moment ago, although everything, Bill, you said is absolutely true and that the, that committee study was correct in stating that. It's just also interesting that at that very same time, because life is complex and nuanced and things are a mixed bag, it, it was also, again, a university under the thrall of the La Follettes, about as liberal uh, and progressive on civil rights as you can get. And I mentioned uh, Max Otto's uh, kind of, towering presence as the most popular professor on campus, a a, a man who was out there on the front lines of civil rights. And he was also in those early years, the the, the campus of Dan Hone, the great socialist mayor in Milwaukee who who started the socialist student socialist group in Madison. So as all these terrible things are happening, as all this overt and casual racism is happening and anti-Semitism and and racial hatred is existing on the Madison campus, at the very same time, there's this other side of the Madison campus. So, so I'm, uh, uh, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. Both things can be and are true. And uh, just getting back briefly to what the caller had mentioned again, chronology. The, the, I, I had interviews with these professors that I mentioned who've spent decades studying the Klan. They are civil rights progressives themselves. They studied the Klan deeply and intensely. And they're saying it's entirely possible for students, even post-birth of a nation, for college students in America to not be fully cognizant of the Klan. Because, again, the second Klan that we know so well came later. There was no national awareness until later. This all predated that. And very little was known or remembered 50 years after the fact about that short-lived but terrible and hideous uh, KKK of the late 1860s. So... These nuances are important. The fact that uh, uh, the symbol, uh, the devil symbol was chosen as a symbol of, of this collegiate group, uh, an academic, male, a male academic honor society. Um, again, no actual Klan group, as so many professors have told us, would select that symbol if they were even tangentially associated with the actual Klan. And there are lots of other things like that that um, people haven't talked about and just overlooked. So. Uh, you know, and, and, and I guess I would um, finish my thought by saying March had these um, very progressive ideas, it seems like from a very early age, as I said, around age 13. But even if the detractors are correct that 
he should never have accepted an invitation to an honor society that had that name, even if the honor society itself had nothing to do with the real clan. Even if he, he should be faulted for that, and I would contend that he sh shouldn't be, given the circumstances I just mentioned, but even if he should be faulted for that, isn't the, the heart of any self-respecting civil rights movement to raise consciousness, to change minds, to persuade people, to uh, feel that people can get better once they know more. And so doesn't basically the next 50 or 60 years of Frederick March's life, who was Arnold Ramper said, said the great Stanford professor, um, a historian of color, by the way, has said, Frederick March risked not only his career, but his life by doing what he did in Jim Crow America. And um, you know, so isn't that precise, isn't that journey precisely what should be celebrated if you thought he did something wrong? And I don't think he did something wrong. You know, George, we're, we're getting to, uh, you know, we have oh, about 10 minutes left, perhaps. I want to get to uh, some discussion, maybe, of the bigger issues, in, uh, implicit and explicit here, uh, regarding the political and social climate in which such a rush to judgment uh, can occur and the implications of that. Um, the movement at the UW that sprung up in, in 2017 uh, uh, and so on uh, came came about in a broader context of uh, um, motion all over the country uh, uh, and on numerous, numerous ca uh, campuses to rename and, and change monuments, uh, uh, rename schools, uh, and so on and so forth. I wonder, Bill Leaders, if you've thought about that. I do think about it, and it's, a, it's an important issue to grapple with. And I do think there are situations where the removal of monuments is an appropriate thing to do because they no longer represent something that uh, we want to uh, acknowledge in what could be seen as a positive way. Um, but there are also can be an argument that historical accuracy matters more than appearance. And this is one of those cases where I think a concession was made uh, to an appearance uh, that was not fully supported by reality. And I think that's very fundamentally dangerous uh, for an institution like the University of Wisconsin to do, to not care about the truth of the matter, but to care about the appearances uh, that uh, surround it. Uh, I'm gonna say for the record, um, the statement that appears on Bascom Hall, because I think it's vitally important uh, not just for the university, but as a uh, as a, a, a signpost for for all institutions uh, in 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 the public sphere, whatever may be the limitations which trammel inquiry elsewhere, we believe that the great state University of Wisconsin should ever encourage that continual and fearless sifting and winnowing by which alone the truth can be found. We live in an age of disinformation. We live at a time where half the country doesn't believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected because some nitwit has come up with that as a, as a, a theory for why he, he lost. Um, it's vitally important that we learn to regain respect for truth, to have uh, uh, fidelity to it, and to be willing to assert uh, the importance of truth over appearance in a situation like this and many others that could come to life. George. And I just want to add that I think a George. great example of that um, uh, might be the San Francisco NAACP. Around the same time things started happening in Madison with regard to Frederick March, there was a controversy at George Washington High School, a public high school in San Francisco, and in fact the alma mater of many famous people, including the great Danny Glover. And they, they there were WPA murals that they were uh, were painted and speak, were, were thought of as being racist and needed to be destroyed and removed. Um, and the San Francisco NAACP basically um, uh, pursued. They may not know about the Wisconsin idea, but they pursued the Wisconsin idea. They they uh, in action. They said, wait a second, before you do something that serious, more research needs to be done. And the San Francisco NAACP did the research and found out that the murals were painted by a man who was a communist and a well-known, boisterous civil rights advocate who, in fact, had intended those murals as a critique of American racism and American genocide. And, and they, they put a kind of a nice punctuation point, uh, the, the San Francisco NAACP did, when they said, doing research 
in, in situations as serious as this is important because things often aren't always what they first appear to be. In fact, Danny Glover himself said removing those murals would be akin to book burning. Uh, that's a direct quote from him. So I think uh, we, we had said in our letter, uh, the, the letter that went to both universities, that indeed we supported the removal of Confederate monuments but this was not that. This was a different situation entirely. And I think that's, I'll finish by saying that same um, uh, um, uh, um, disposal of those continent did happen when the statue of Hans Christian Hig was toppled around the same time and the forward statue on the Capitol grounds uh, because apparently he was in a Civil War uniform, but people didn't realize, well, it would have been a Union uniform representing the state that had the most radical abolitionists in the country, where it was constant abolitionists. And Hegg himself, Colonel Hegg, gave his life in that cause and, in fact, was a major abolitionist and underground railroad participant here in Wisconsin. And his statue was uh, toppled uh, because people didn't do their research. Uh, the forward statue, for, forward that, that motto started under this abolitionist Wisconsin. So even forward has an abolitionist pedigree. Yeah, there was very little research being done on the night that they ripped those statues down. And it highlights again the importance on at least some level of the truth of the matter. If you're going to tear down a statue of a person to make a statement against racism, you should have to confront the fact that this was a notable anti-racist, an abolitionist, someone who gave his life for the, the, the cause of fighting slavery. Um, the idea that that is somehow irrelevant to the anger of the moment uh, is objectionable. You know, uh, we uh, called that so in the progressive at the time that it happened. I want to, uh, we have one last caller that we're going to squeeze in here before we have to head toward a wrap. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Shelly, go ahead. Oh, we also have Steve on the line. Steve, sorry. Steve, hi, you're on the air. Yeah, thanks, uh, Alan and Ben and George. I'm an armchair anthropologist living just off the square who inevitably is involved in or witnesses political action there. And I have a permanent physical disability sustained during the night of broken glass, 30 May 2020, when I was mistakenly targeted by young toughs for supposedly being a racist. As recently as two days ago, I interrupted a sidewalk soapboxer who lambasted Colonel Hegg for purported racism and only my gift for gab saved me uh, from uh, harm that <laughs> on that occasion. My point is that what set me off was his remark, do your research, as he brandished his cell phone. This is a further example of the societal damage done by contemporary social media. Uh, I had to throw that out. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. And let's get Shally, our, our producer engineer, has, has a question as well, and, and then we'll head toward a wrap pretty soon. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. Um, I'm curious to hear what our guests have to say when, when you mentioned, Alan, the political circumstances uh, that this happened. In 2017, the Madison Common Council uh, and, and the city removed uh, monuments at the Confeder Confederates' rest at the... Um, Forest Hill, I believe, cemetery. Um, and that was back in the news this year because that removal was subject to a lawsuit uh, from a local attorney who sued both former make, uh, Mayor Paul Soglin and the members of the council back then uh, for doing that. He And his complaint, he, he charged that the decision was rash, politically motivated, and dishonest, and a prelude to Soglin's run for governor in 2018. So I'm curious what you, if you have anything to say to that and how you feel about that removal. I'm ambivalent about a lot of these things. I can see the argument that could be made to not have a monument in honor of Confederate soldiers is something that you want in a public institution. But I think that context is more important, that the concerns that are raised about some of these monuments can be addressed by additional context that is part of the uh, display. The rush to take things down as though that solves some sort of problem is 
it's questionable, it's troublesome. We had a 2,000-pound uh, rock removed from the university because it once had a racist name. Does that really accomplish something in terms of advancing society to being more anti-racist, to being uh, more inclusive? I don't think that it does. I think that some of these gestures that are made that are supposed to absolve us of the sin of racism are phony, uh, and they don't deserve to stand, and they should be questioned and opposed. And, and, and I'll just echo that, Bill. It's a, 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 everything has to be, of course, a case-by-case case situation. Some monuments and names should be removed. Some shouldn't. And only research, uh, uh, act research can determine that. March's name was removed uh, based completely on social media rumors. No one had done any research, as I pointed out, and so many professors have pointed out several times. And, and in fact, in the, there were two two-hour hearings at Memorial Union, uh, w which had one speaker after another dogmatically accusing March again of racism, uh, white supremacy, and being a member of the Klan, and not a single fact about March's uh, activism across seven decades was brought up at all. And right now, I find the university is even spinning these days that thorough research was done on March's career before um, the removal happened, and that's just not the case. Uh, just a few weeks, uh, just two or three weeks after these two two-hour hearings, his name was removed, and uh, there had there was never any mention. The only the the, the 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 detractors were armed only with the social media rumor and not the litany of facts. You know, just dozens upon dozens of facts. Uh, you know, he's um, uh, you know he's in Mar he's in Harry Belafonte's apartment in 1963 with Martin Luther King, Frederick Marches. For a secret strategy session before Dr. King's uh, famous journey to Birmingham and the letter from Birmingham jail, um, so it, it's uh, he, he's someone the university needs to be proud of, should be proud of, and uh, the fact that they're not telling the full story still. The university's not imparting to its student body his full uh, civil rights history is sad. We're going to have to leave it there, uh, George Gonis uh, and Bill Leaders. Uh, I want to thank the both of you for this informative hour. I want to thank Jolly for producing and engineering. Next week, uh, sort of in line with some of what we've been discussing t today, I have uh, African-American uh, civil rights uh, historian Peniel Joseph. Where he's going to be talking about the third reconstruction. Um, I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be talking with you and Peniel Joseph next week. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight.